online, you're probably wondering, hey, what's that noise I hear in the background? Uh, well, we encouraged uh, a good portion of our First Impressions team to come and hang out with us this morning, and we are going to be talking about how we serve people in our body beginning next weekend. And so we're looking forward to it, but friends, we're glad to have you this morning. Can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. Amen. He is, uh, he is so faithful and he is so good. And in this series, uh, A Faithful Husband, A Promiscuous Wife, we've been taking a look at the book of Hosea. We are going to be in chapters five and six this morning. And uh, here, here's what I would tell you. Um, a couple of nights ago, Kelly and I were uh, fast asleep. It was about 3.30 in the morning. And uh, I, I was out cold. And uh, all of a sudden, our fire alarms start going off in the middle of the night. The first thing I know to do is hop out of bed, and I run with a dead sprint to our living room, which is the uh, there. The living room is the base of our stairs, which goes upstairs to where our kiddos are. And I'm yelling as loud as I can, Brady, Caleb, get up. Go get your sister. I have no time to process whether there, there's smoke or there's something happening. All I know is like in the heat of the moment, my stomach is in my throat. Anybody ever had one of those false alarms? Yes? Uh, well, here's the deal. Uh, what we see here in Isaiah, or Isaiah um, and what we see in Hosea chapter 5 and 6 is we see that God is sounding an alarm. Hey, guys, y'all mind turning my volume down in here? So he is sounding an alarm, and that alarm is for Israel. And what he's saying is, is hey, you better pay attention because punishment is coming. Uh, the other night, uh, by God's grace, it was a false alarm in our house, but it was preparation for the real deal. Uh, our kids, even as they went to bed last night, were still talking about, hey, dad, what happens? Hey, mom, what happens if we really do wake up in the middle of the night? And it's a good opportunity to use that as a training resource and a tool moving forward. But here it is. Uh, we have seen prophets, uh, in the, prophets in the north, prophets in the south, telling the people of Israel, it's time to repent. It's time to turn back. And yet it seems to continue to fall on deaf ears until we get to chapter 6 and then we see a response. But in chapter 5, this is how it begins. Uh, Hosea is sharing with the priest. He says, hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare in Mizpah and a net spread in Tabor. Uh, the idea here is he's saying, hey, listen, you ought to be paying attention. And he's specifically speaking to the delivery service. Uh, it's like the, the postal service in a sense. And the postal service for the people of Israel are their priests and their kings and their leaders. And what he's saying is, he goes, you've got a message to share and you need to pay attention because somehow or another, uh, we haven't been sharing the right message. And so you need to give ear. You need to pay attention because right now there are many things that are happening. And he gives the imagery of, a, in a sense, of a, a hunter. And, and he talks about the idea of a snare spread upon or a net spread upon Mitzpah and Tabor. What he's saying is, is he goes, I'm in a sense about to gather you. You are about to be entrapped and closed because you've not paid attention. In verse two, he tells you who it is that's not paying attention. He says, it's the revolters. And the revolters have gone into deep slaughter, but I will discipline them all. And the word... Um, 
dis, or, uh, revolters there is the word in the Hebrew, which is literally just sete, which means to um, swerve, to go off track. And I don't know about you, but you think about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Uh, what does it say? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So the question is, what happens when we don't trust in the Lord, but we trust in our own provision? Or what happens when uh, we seek our own wisdom rather than the Lord's wisdom? Well, here's what we know. We swerve. Our path is no longer straight. And oftentimes, um, we trust in our own intellect, our own wisdom, and we do what's right in our own eyes. Well, that's the, uh, the source of what Israel is continuing to do. Matter of fact, we saw in uh, Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, that there was lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They were breaking all bounds. They were uh, having bloodshed, following bloodshed. All of this was because the nation as a whole had revolted. They'd gotten off path, they'd swerved, and they've gone a different direction. Uh, you might even wonder, well, what do you mean by they've swerved? Well, I'll tell you, you could even read 2 Kings chapter 21. Uh, there was a king called Ahab. You know him because he was married to this wicked woman called Jezebel. Now, listen, you don't ever name your granddaughter or, or your daughter Jezebel, do you? Right. I mean, we, we think about, uh, you know, great names like Ruth or Naomi, or we might even think about for our sons, Joshua or Caleb. But what you, what you don't call them as Achan because of his sin. You don't, you don't name your children Judas, and you certainly don't know, name your daughter Jezebel. And the reason why is because they were revolters. They swerved. They didn't keep straight paths. And so we remember that. Well, here's the deal. Um, Ahab did not keep a straight path. He actually married this woman named uh, Jezebel. And at one point in 2 Kings chapter 21, Ahab wanted a vineyard near his palace. And it was, ne uh, it was owned by a guy named Naboth. And Naboth had this vineyard and uh, the king actually went to Naboth and he goes, hey, I want your vineyard. I want to put a vegetable garden in. Um, and so I would love for you to just kind of hand that over to me. I mean, I'll pay you for it, but I would love to have it. And Naboth replied, no, like that would be an insult to the God, uh, to God of heaven and earth. He, if we inherited this land from our forefathers, we are to hold on to this land. And so here it is, Ahab, the king of Israel, goes home and he's downtrodden. And he's sad because he can't put in a good vegetable garden. Good reason to be ticked off, right? Um, and so uh, he goes home and here's the deal. His wife, who is wicked, and she also is a revolter leading the country as well, says, hey, don't worry about that. You're the king of Israel. Who, who's to tell you no? And so she conspires, makes a plan. They make up some things about Naboth. They, uh, in a sense, uh, tell, tell the people that he has uh, been treacherous towards God. They make up false accusations. And guess what? They end up stoning and killing this man. And Jezebel goes to the king and he goes, and she says, hey, no reason to be sad anymore. Naboth has died. Go take his vineyard. And so he goes and he takes the, the vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but guys, do you think that the government's corrupt when you're killing people to take their stuff? That's a problem. And that's what the leaders in Israel were doing. It was bloodshed following bloodshed. This isn't just like a kind of a, a game that we see here in the Bible. It's like, oh, there's some people and they're bowing down to carved images. No, what you see is you see total corruption on the streets. You see people who are hating one another, reviling one another, cursing one another, stealing from one another. And from the top down, you have people, even the leaders, taking advantage of those underneath them. Now, I know that it's hard for us as Americans to relate to anything like that. 
But that's the state of the country. The country was in despair. And God has said, listen, you have revolted. You have swerved. It is from the priest to the kings to the leaders. It is everyone. It is the municipalities. Everyone from the top down is becoming corrupt. And so let me ask you a question. Can you and I rightfully take the boundaries that God has set forth and can we change them? Is that our right? And I would say no. Matter of fact, can I just take like just 10 seconds and give a commercial real quick? Because I've seen something. Uh, I'm not on Facebook except kind of the creepy way through my wife's account occasionally. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, and so, but I've noticed something that's happening. And here's what's happening. We're in a point in time in our nation where obviously there is civil unrest there is political unrest, racial tension. Um, obviously, there's many of us who have lots of opinions around this COVID thing, um, and they're all over the place. And I would tell you, just as a pastor in the middle of it, it's super confusing because you don't even know who you're talking to anymore. Even within the church, you're like, I don't know, like, uh, should I say something? Should I not? Like, I just, so I just listen a lot and don't talk too much because we're all opinionated. And here's the deal. Here's what I want you to see is this. We're also getting to the point, though, where what we're thinking is, is I'm tired of all of this disarray. I'm tired of all the disunity. And so I'm just going to let people do them and I'm going to do me. And you go, oh, that sounds like a really good idea until you read the Bible. And here's what you would see is that's not a good biblical principle. Listen, we don't get a right as believers in Christ to let our nation swerve and say, you just do you and I'll do me. That's not what believers do. Believers are light in the darkness. We make straight paths. We say, listen, we're going to trust the Lord with all our heart. We're not going to lean on our own understanding. Listen, I don't get all that's going on, but here's what I do. I know that God is on his throne. And I do know that in the midst of all of this craziness, I know that God has a purpose in this. And you might hear and you may go, hey, he's judging a nation, which we'll talk about. Listen, we see God judging a nation here. And the question that you might ask, is he judging our nation? And I would say maybe, possibly, but there is a plan. There is a way for us to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. As we continue in Hosea chapter five, you get to verse three, and he begins to speak about kind of the nation's leading tribe, Ephraim. He goes, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For, for now, oh, Ephraim, uh, you've played the whore. Israel's defiled. He's basically saying, hey, listen, in all the swerving, your people can't run and hide from me. He goes, Jonah tried it and it didn't work. Psalm 139, I created you in the inmost being. I knew you, knew you before you were born. I knew you when you were born. I know when you sit and when you rise, when you come and you go, I get it from afar. Like you can't outrun me, so why try? And that's what Israel thought. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have to pay attention. Maybe God doesn't see it all. He sees it all. He knows it all. Matter of fact, verse 4, it says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is with them and in them, and they do not know the Lord. The idea is, is what he's saying is kind of that Proverbs 14, 12. The, the country as a whole, they do what seems right to them. And a way that seems right to men is the thing that leads to death. And so they're doing that, they're continuing on, but even as they're doing that, they in sense have an arrogance about it, a boastfulness. Look at verse five. This says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. 
So it means in some ways they're almost beaming in arrogance. Like they think that what they're doing is something that God doesn't see. In some ways that maybe uh, their uh, empty sacrifice and their continued uh, empty worship, maybe that's appeasing the God of heaven and earth, but it's not. And so they, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and the Ephraim, uh, they shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Verse uh, 6 goes on and says, And with their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. If you have your Bibles, you can underline that. Uh, you can put an exclamation point, and then you can circle that, and then you can put some little asterisks and stars, and then you could say, This is sad. And the reason why is because what we know is, is that, in a sense, God has withdrawn himself from the nation. And the question is, is why is he withdrawing himself? Like, why is it that, in a sense, he's removing himself? And here's why. It's because of their empty, vain attempts to appease God. And so, in a sense, he's going, you don't want me. Your, your path, your swervingness already shows that. And so, he goes, I'm withdrawing from you. And I'm not just going to withdraw from you. I'm going to withdraw from everything about you, your herds and your flocks, everything about the country I'm removing myself from. But you know that that's not really the character of the Lord. The character of the Lord always has been, even outlined in Deuteronomy, is that if you and I will seek God with all of our heart, we'll find him. So is it that God is removing himself in this context, or is it that Israel has removed themselves in the context? And I think that's the better idea there. Israel has stopped following their God, the very one who birthed them as a country, the very one who led them uh, through, the, uh, through the Red Sea into the promised land, through a wilderness sojourn, the very one who's been with them, uh, who has led them, is the one who they have turned their back on. And this isn't new, but this is a very serious point in their history. Verse 7, it says, They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have been, uh, been in a sense, born and uh, producing alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Uh, he's basically saying, hey, listen, they're, they're even got in bed with foreign women. You're beginning to see foreign children. Guys, you, you wonder how Samaria was born. It was an interbreeding of multiple different countries. And listen, the Jewish people were a part of that. They were all a part of intermarrying, and it was things that didn't produce honor before the Lord. And so their, uh, their relationships are impure. There's fidelity all around. Their homes are broken, in disrepair. Their country and their leaders are wicked, and it is troublesome. And in verse 8, this is what the Lord says. He goes, hey, Hosea, tell them that we're going to blow the horn in Gibeah. Uh, Gibeah is just north of Bethlehem. And he says, and we're going to blow the trumpet in Ramah. We're going to sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We uh, follow you, O Benjamin. What he's saying is, he goes, we're going to start just north of Bethlehem. And we're going to sound the alarm. We're going to blow the trumpet. We're going we're gonna to make sure the sound alarms are going. The smoke alarms are going to go off. And when they go off, you better pay attention because this is no longer a warning. This isn't the sirens that just happen to get set off by the city officials because we're testing the system. This is a test, and it begins to move itself up from, in a sense, um, Gibeah, and it's going to Ramah, and it's just moving itself up to the north, and it just continues that pattern. And he goes, and you need to pay attention. Oh, Benjamin, we are, we are telling you you need to be ready. Why? Because the Lord's judgment is coming. 
Verse 9, it says, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is sure. Verse 10 says, The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am going to be like a moth of Ephraim, like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and they sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Now, as you get to kind of these, um, this little section, he's going, hey, sound the alarm. Hey, make sure that you know that the, the horn's being blown in Gibeah. Hey, make sure that the trumpet in Ramah, make sure that you know the alarm in Beth-Avon. Well, Beth-Avon is the furthest port up to the north. And if you know where the north was, Beth-Avon, that's also where Beth-El is. And Beth-El is where they put one of the golden calves for their false worship. Bethel means the house of God. But guess what? Bethel has now become the Beth-Avon, which is the house of emptiness or the house of idols. What he's doing is he goes, listen, you have given yourself over to what's false. The, the alarm is sounded and he goes, and it's going to become like a desolation. Now, listen, I think, this is just my personal opinion, um, this is not just futuristic, the Assyrians coming down. I do think that's happening. But what I think is happening here in the context of Hosea chapter 5 is a civil war that you actually see play out in 2 Chronicles 28. And you also see uh, Hezekiah, one of the last kings in Israel, reach out to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah comforts him. Isaiah chapter 7, he goes, in the midst of all the turmoil and Assyria coming down, Judah, you're going to be protected but in the midst of the civil unrest between the north and the south, which I think is what it's talking about in chapter 5, you know what uh, Isaiah in chapter 7 uh, points Hezekiah, the king of Judah, to? He goes, listen, just know that there is one who's going to bring hope, and his name is the Messiah. And in Isaiah seven fourteen, he points him to something futuristic that I believe is going to occur in the city of Bethlehem, the, the city of David. And he goes, that's our hope. Until then, you have no hope because the north is going to be destroyed. There's turmoil there, and it's going to move down to the south. Matter of fact, how do you know that it's going to happen? Because verse 13, he goes, when Ephraim finally sees his sickness, he, he sees that they've swerved off path. What does it do? He goes, they, they see it. Judah even sees his wound down to the south. They see it. They get their sick. And do you know what happens? This is another sad point in your Bible is they turn to the Lord, right? And the Lord heals their wounds. No, look at it. It says, and when Ephraim, Ephraim saw his sickness. Ephraim, Ephraim then turned to Assyria. So instead of the northern tribes turning to God and going, we're sick, we're messed up, we've sinned against the, the Lord of heaven and earth, instead of turning towards him and repenting, they go to a king in Assyria and ask for help. I don't know about you, friends, that would be like us knowing that we are in dismay and then turning to someone that's not even our ally and asking them for help from their government. Now you would go, that's absurd. And it seems absurd, doesn't it? But that's the links that they were willing to go to to get help other than the Lord. And because of that, verse 14, you see the Lord's response. I will be like a lion to Ephraim. I will be like a, a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry them off and no one shall come to the rescue. Verse 15 says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, they earnestly seek me. Here's what the Lord has done. He goes, I'm fed up with it. I'm going to bring them down. I'm, they're, they're going to come to ruins. And listen, there is no hope for them until they finally turn back to me. 
And that's the, the whole point of all this. Now think about our country. When is the hope when you would say, well, it's when our country finally turns back to the Lord. And that's what a lot of us are praying for. But here's what I would tell you. When is this fulfilled? In chapter 15, and a lot of us would say, well, it hadn't been fulfilled yet because Israel still hasn't turned back to God in terms of the nation as a whole. For those of us that really know our Bibles really well, you know that the Israel, the nation is not going to turn back to God until the very last days and to what we would say the seven-year tribulation, which has not occurred yet. And so the question is, is has, has that happened in any way? And here's what I would say. It has happened in some way, but not totally. And I'm going to tell you this. It's the same thing that's going to be true for our nation. So you better pay attention. Did some people return to the Lord? Did he tear all of them into shreds? And I would say this, though he deported the, the north and they had a 70-year period of uh, desolation and then eventually would return. Listen, wasn't there a faithful remnant? You remember a guy named Daniel who was a faithful remnant thrown into a den of lions, but God, what, held him? Why? Because God, Daniel's heart was positioned towards the Lord. You remember his friends who wouldn't bow down to uh, the old great Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were faithful remnant, right? You remember the story of of Esther uh, going to the king and God protected and spared her? You remember Ruth and Naomi and their kinsman redeemer, this guy named Boaz, who were faithful examples? You, You see this? There were examples. Now, they're sparse and they're few, but they were examples. And they are the ones who would turn to the Lord. Then the whole nation wouldn't, but individuals would. You have later, you have Joshua, the high priest who uh, leads an expedition to begin rebuilding. He's joined by a guy named Zerubbabel. Later on, you would get another guy named Ezra and Nehemiah as they would produce a second wave. You see this faithfulness throughout your Bible. You see the prophets, but it's sparse. It's, it's a remnant. It's just a spare little part that you have to pay attention to. And listen, that's what the Lord's looking for. He's looking for people who will be faithful to him and who will come to him. Matter of fact, look what the nation does. They're going to come to him in verse in chapter six. It says this, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That kind of is a, a little picture. You're like, oh, wow. What is that something tucked in about Jesus there? in chapter 6. Let us press on to the Lord. He's going on uh, what is sure at the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rain has watered the earth. Now, here's the deal. They're praying to God, and I would tell you, even if you get to verse 2, I I don't know that that's a prediction about Jesus, although you could certainly make one there probably in some case. But here's what you have. You have the nation as a whole beginning to pray. And they're saying, oh, yes, let us come and let's seek the Lord. And you can see them bringing sacrifices. But the problem is is that the Lord's anger isn't going to go away. And the reason why is because their repentant heart is is not repentant. Here's what they've got. They've got empty, vain, useless, contrived worship. Which I would say, if I'm honest, is the biggest problem in the American church. You got people who go on Sunday mornings for duplicity's sake. It, 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 they're, they're, they're there in a lot of times, and, and we expect the corporate worship, but the reality is, is we're not living for God individually. We want him to change us as people, but the problem is, is that we don't want him to change us from the inside out. And that's the nation of Israel. And the Lord does not hear their prayer. Matter of fact, what they're looking for is a genie in a bottle. That if we do some sacrifice, if we pray a prayer, then surely the Lord's going to spare us. But the Lord is not going to spare them. Why? Because the Lord knows 
our thoughts from afar. He knows our intentions. He can divide us through his word to the very joint and the marrow. He knows everything about us, even our false attempts at worship. And certainly this was a false attempt from Israel. And this is the Lord's response. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. He goes, you, you pop up and it looks like there's going to be something and it's just a dew and it just finally just, just vanishes. He goes, like, it looks promising, and I get it. You, you show up, and there's this external measure of worship, but it's empty. It's contrived. It's vain. It's useless because your heart is really not in it. What your heart is in is doing evil. Your heart is in doing what's right in your own eyes. And so he's saying, hey, you're proud. Verse 5, he goes, therefore, I have hewn you by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love. And steadfast love literally is where you get the word hesed or loyalty. He goes, I am looking for a steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It reminds us of the prophet Malachi. He goes, God is shutting the doors to the altar because he is tired of your lambs. You bring lambs, but your lamb is, is blind. Your lamb has a broken leg, and you're like, hey, here, God, here's my best offering. And he goes, and, and he's done. He, he's over it because you are not giving him what you just really should. You're giving him not the first fruits, but you're giving him the last fruits. You're giving him the leftovers. Verse 7, he says, this is why, because just like Adam transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Just as Adam and Eve were morally corrupt, so the nation has become morally corrupt. Verse 8, he says, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers, they lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. This is their priest. This is their leaders. Verse 10 says, in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Verse 11, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. Here's what he's saying. He's going, hey, listen, the nation is in a very bad place. The north, Ephraim, the south, Judah, they're, they're sick. And they should return to the Lord, but they can't because their, their worship is empty and it's vain and it's contrived. And, and friends, I don't know about you, but I think the timing is the Lord's. As we prepare to return together into a corporate way, let, can, I just, can I just preach for just a second? We really need to be thinking about whether or not we return corporately. I'm talking, this is a pivotal point in the life of Stone Point Church. We really need to be thinking about what do we do? This is a great time and a season for us to be thinking, hey, do we close our doors? Hey, do we just shut it all down, give it all away, and bless some bodies that are making a difference across Van Zant County? Or do we say, no, we are going to be the place where the altar's open? We're going to be the place where we don't just gather corporately and fake it. Because listen, I'm just going to be honest. We, a lot of us have been faking it too long. And the reason I know we're faking it is because it's not about the corporate body as a whole. Listen, it's not about our nation as a whole. The chances of God saving our entire nation in a revival at this point can happen, but is slim. And here's why. Because there's two points I want to make real quickly to you. Number one is simply this. A return to the Lord starts with the individual and their families. 
Guys, we can be praying and we should be praying for Minneapolis and Atlanta and Dallas and Wills Point and Edgewood. We ought to be praying for them. But listen, we are fooling ourselves if we believe that repentance is going to start as a whole when it hasn't started in the church. If you and I continue to come to God and our prayers are empty, our worship is contrived, if we continue to do what's right in our own eyes and then somehow we put a name tag on ourselves on a Sunday morning, we raise our hands, shout hallelujah, and go out unchanged, we are the problem. The problem has not originated over time because of politicians, are they a part of the challenge? Absolutely. Just as the nation of Israel's challenge was its leaders. But one of the problems is, is that the nation's leaders here in this day and time are not God's leaders. Yes, they're appointed by God, but you and I are the priesthood. We are the leaders. We are the ones seasoned with salt. We are the hope to the hopeless. We are the joy in the morning. As the dew sets, we are the ones who should not vanish away empty. Our worship does not have to be contrived. We don't have to wait our through, wait through all of this on our pins and needles because we can literally seek to understand one another. Why? Because we know that we are image bearers and we know the people that we talk to are image bearers. And we can seek to understand even things that are difficult and hard. Why? Because we know that our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. But when we finally settle that and we realize the Lord is doing, we can begin to be his people. But if it starts individually, listen, the goal for us is not to gather next weekend corporately if we've not read our Bibles throughout the week. Guys, God has given us his truth. He has imparted our, his wisdom to us. And I'll tell you one of the craziest things, if I'm honest, just as a pastor, is the amount of people who want to gather corporately, but we're not gathering individually with God ourselves. Like, why do you want to gather corporately with a God that you're not gathering with individually? That's absurd, isn't it? I mean, just think about that for just one second. John 15, Jesus says, If a man, re I'm the vine, you're the branch. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear a true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So are you, are you believing that you're more with God on a Sunday morning with other people than you are with him on a Monday individually? Because that is the lie that our nation has believed, that somehow we are better together on a weekend than we are individually on a weekday. And that is wrong. It is a wrong thinking. We are best as individuals abiding with the Lord together all the time. Through this one thing about COVID-19, coronavirus, all the dysfunction that's happening in our society, the thing I'm most encouraged by is the people who've gotten in their Bibles. The thing I'm most discouraged by are the people who'd say, I haven't been in my Bible. Why? Why? In, in the time of a nation's despair, shouldn't we be in our Bibles? Because we're the very ones that with our fingertips are telling everybody about how challenging it is as a nation, right? Like it's just so challenging. And listen, is it challenging? Absolutely. But who's the lead the charge? Who's to sound the alarms? We are. And how do we do it? Do we do it with a microphone telling everybody how wrong they are? No, we do it being seasoned with salt, we do it being a picture of the gospel, the glorious hope of Jesus Christ. It starts with us individually. It starts with us individually. And as it begins to move through us individually, and we begin to come to a place where we allow the Lord to search us and know us, Psalm 139, 
when we begin to allow him to move in us strongly, it begins to point out that God's not interested in our meaningless attempts at worship service, faithless prayers, and contrived repentance, which is my point number two. Listen, God's not interested in us gathering back together next week if it's just something we're going to do in our schedule. And listen, one, let's just be honest. One of the reasons we like Sunday morning is because it's kind of a tone setter for the rest of the week. What's that mean? It means that if you go to church on Sunday, you don't forget somehow in the middle of, of the week that it's a Wednesday. In some ways, it's like a mile marker. It's, it's just something we stick on the wall. We went to church on, on, on Sunday. But listen, can I just tell you, the reason we come to this place, the reason we gather corporately, the reason we prefer one another, even as we do it, is because we believe that this time together is simply a sweet reminder of the faithful God in which we serve. It is a sweet chance for us to get together and just remind one another of a couple of things. Here's number one, that God is supreme. He is worthy of our worship. That we are fallible and he is holy. That we are lost without him. That we need his spirit to guide us. And as we see each other, and as we hug necks and we shake hands, do you know what the point of the Sunday gathering is? It's just to be reminded of our great need of God. It is in a sense to confirm with one another that we are broken apart from God. And then listen, then when we get together, we preach God's word, we remind each other what it looks like to be light and salt. And then for some of us, we need to begin to admonish one another. We need to say things like this, stop hitting enter on your Facebook page. Write it. Take it down. Yes, it was an expression. And yes, your feelings are so real. I have those feelings. But sometimes we need to exercise wisdom and this other thing that's a spiritual um, thing called discernment and self-control. Listen, not because what you're saying is not worth saying, but the context is very difficult to read. And I'll tell you, this last week, I sat down with some African-American brothers had lunch with them, sought to understand where they're at, had a very solid dialogue, one that could not take place on Facebook. Listen, can I just tell you one of the most disheartening things is I've seen people who attend this body in the last handful of days that have written things that if they put it together would be absolutely contrary to what I think I believe and what we would teach her at Stone Point. And listen, it's just an opinion. And I get it. It's a strong opinion. We have them. But listen, as believers in Christ, we have to think through what all this looks like. Why? Because we don't have the answers. But we, we know a God who does. And friends, I'll tell you, we need him more now than ever. And as we move forward together, can I just encourage you? One of the things that we need to encourage people most to do is go, hey, what you're doing is not wise. I love you. I kind of have the same opinion as you do. But, but we need to think through what it looks like. And so my question really as we move forward, if we want to see our nation turn, what is it that we're going to be known for? What, is it, how, what kind of hard conversations are we going to have? How are we going to sound the alarm? And I think there's lots of different ways you can do that, lots of different opinions on how you do that. But I would tell you this, if you want to make a change in this country, you better get proximate to God you better get willing to get proximate to those that are not like you, who don't see the world the way you see it, because we want to give them a worldview that they've never seen before, and it's only one that God can orchestrate in their hearts by his saving grace.
And friends, I have a lot of friends that need this more than ever. And they need God's truth. But listen, there's a lot of my friends who are creating a chasm between me and their relationship to have a conversation because of our foolishness. And so friends, I pray you would take this. And I don't know what the church looks like moving forward. I'll tell you this. I feel compelled that we keep our doors open. I feel compelled that we are going to be a faithful example. But listen, if we're not going to be that, then we, we really need to think about what it is we're doing. And so I pray this is a challenge to you. I pray it spurs you on. I pray that you're encouraged. I pray that if you walk away a little bit today and you're righteously angered, that's okay. That's okay. But we need to trust the Lord as we move forward. And for a lot of us in here, we need to be ready that the, a fire alarm might go off. And we need to wake up out of our slumber. And we need to hold the warning signs the Holy Spirit has given many of us in our life. And we need to say, you know what, Lord, it's time for me to hit my knees in repentance because I've been empty, vain, and contrived. And I'm not seeking after you the way I should. It's evident to me. It's evident to my husband or my, my wife. It's evident to my kids and the way I handle things. It's evident to my coworkers because I'm not close to you and I need to be. And I, you know what's so encouraging? Is that in Hosea chapter five, it says the Lord departed from the nation. Do you know that the Lord might could depart from a nation if he chose to? But do you know who he can't depart from? The individual because he is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because he gave us the promised Holy Spirit if we're believers in Christ, and the Holy Spirit will never, ever leave you on your own. Amen, amen, amen. Let me pray for us, church. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us in our time together, encourage our hearts, remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, sound the alarms, and I pray that you would use us to do that. I pray that you would help us to be wise in our interaction with others. And most of all, I pray that you would help us to be wise in our thinking about why we would even regather. Lord, why are we here? What does it look like to regather? Is it something that we do because we've always done this thing called church? Or is it something we do because the people of God get to celebrate and be excited about who you are? Lord, I pray it's that. God, rip away like a lion, tear away anything about the American church that doesn't honor you. Lord, stretch us, grow us, mold us. Lord, make us more diverse. Lord, help us to acknowledge our sinfulness and our wretchedness. Help us to deal with things that we've done in the past that don't honor you. Lord, help us to shut empty and vain and contrived altars. And Lord, help us to, to come and, and just bear ourselves at the foot of the cross. And Lord, help us to be repentant. Help us to make amends with others. Help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Lord, help us to be a light in the darkness. Lord, help our conversation be seasoned with salt. Lord, help us to love one another, care for one another. Lord, help us to devote to one another relationally. Lord, biblically, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, for some of us in this room to admonish one another gently, carefully, winsomely, wisely. But Lord, I pray that we would sound the alarms with one another, that we would see that sometimes the direction that we go is not wise, that we would turn about Go a different direction so that it pleases you. Lord, I pray that the greatest day of Stone Point Church is not what's happened in the last nine and a half years, but I pray it's what happens from this point forward, right here. I pray that on this day, June 21st of 2020, I pray this is a day that you mark in our history. 
as a chance for us to acknowledge what it is that we're doing and why we continue to have our doors open. And so we need your help. We love you, we sing to you, and we acknowledge our need for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.